That is Herb Alpern, the 2 on Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio uh, is, is, I think, the newest member of uh, Fangraphs Prospect Analyst Staff, our, crass, our crack prospect analyst staff. His name is Kylie McDaniel, and he's, he's helping me with the introduction. Kylie, you're there. I am here. You are here. Uh, this uh, conversation, if I'm not mistaken, begins uh, with a discussion of uh, Back to the Future. Yes, and even earlier in Entrapment, but I'm not sure if you were recording that early. Oh, I was recording that early. Right. There will be a conversation of uh, Entrapment, uh, uh, thinking of one's own origins and uh, immortality and Back to the Future, but somehow we parlayed that into a discussion about prospects. And me saying the phrase, uh, this is a guy, over and over and over. The, right. You, you did say this is a guy. We talked, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about uh, Marcus Stroman a little bit and his mechanics, a uh, uh, pitcher in the, in the Blue Jays organization. Um, yes, and Lance McCullers and references to Ken Winsicum, Natalie Feliz, and a whole cast of others that probably will bore most people. No, it won't, and uh, uh, it will excite them. And also uh, Jose Fernandez, uh, yes. a, a Marlins pitcher. And we asked the question at one point, uh, <laughs> what's the deal? Uh, with Carlos Carrasco, where is he? He's uh, controlled by the Indians, but where is he? That's that's. I don't even know if we answer it. One of life's great questions. I think we can all agree. It is yes, uh, and, and uh, one of life, one of life's great people is uh, Kyla McDaniel. Uh, he is the guest on this edition of uh, this this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which begins, I swear to God, right now. Well, that was bad. consent to that i do i don't consent to entrapment though i'm not trying to entrap you yeah don't worry about I it i only think of Catherine zeta jones now i'm a huge fan of that movie <laughs> yeah that's right quality cinema no doubt uh i did have the awkward occasion i i remember when that the uh oh wait sorry i gotta just the levels here when that movie came out uh seeing that was the one with the the, the ass scene right yeah, 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 we're all thinking of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, right. So, which is fine, and like as a red-blooded man, uh, that's fine for me. But I do remember watching that preview with my dad, and like he was like, he we he still don't, we still don't. This is still an awkward always situation for me. He's like, he's like uh, elbowing me, like, hey, you notice what's happening there? And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm because I was like a teenage boy. I was like, yeah. I'm not immune to that, but I also don't want you to know about it. Yeah, it's almost the whole charm is, of it is lost when someone's telling you how much you should be enjoying it. Yeah, right, and especially when that person is responsible for your existence. Yeah, when he uh, he was probably thinking the same thing when you were created. Yeah, right, and I right, and I don't. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like I think that a lot of times people. And by the way, this is prospect analysis right now. <laughs> Can we be clear? Oh about no, that? I would. There are many misogynist thoughts that have been conveyed to me in uh, prospect scouting talk, especially in uh, clubhouses. Let me tell you. Well, actually, that, well, that's a, I, uh, of course, I would never ask you because, as we stated immediately, uh, entrapment is not uh, why we're here. I'm not here to entrap you. However, I think that uh, you you do have some experiences within baseball, and uh, whether it's discussing misogyny or if it's just discussing other sorts of things that. Um, Especially as nerd analysts, who we might not consider, I think that is interesting. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna mark that down. I don't know. I'm gonna put anecdotal. I'm gonna put anecdotes down on the agenda. I just written that down. But no, the point is, um, this is a theory I have. Is that the reason why we don't like to um, uh, the no, the notion of our of our parents fornicating 
is a, I think is a I'll describe it as irksome, and I think it's because we. For a number of reasons, but we don't like to think about our origin because if you think about your origin, then you immediately have to think about um, the uh, your demise as well and your death. And I think that that has something to do with it. Would you accept that uh, that theory? Uh, I, I am definitely one of the people that uh, don't don't realize what I'm thinking about until I start reasoning it out. And what you said sounds too deep for me to consciously think about, but mm-hmm. that certainly sounds like something I would think on. Right, because like you could you could. You could make like you could be joking with a friend, and you can make them think about their own parents uh, uh, doing that. And it's not as gross for you, but then when it's your own parents, it's it's too it's too close. You're you're too it's too much proximity to your own mortality, and I think that that's what it is. And this all was brought to the forefront by the uh, fantastic Back to the Future trilogy. Oh, that's interesting. That's right. Yeah, uh, and he has the um, the odd situation of. Is it a young uh, – who is the actress who plays that? Are you, do you know this off the top of your head? Uh, hold on. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Keep going. I'll think of it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, – um, right. It's not – is it Rhea something? It might be Rhea something. Don't worry. I'm uh, illicitly – oh, Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I was illicitly Googling as I was uh, talking to you. The um, – yeah, I, right, and and he has that he has that situation. I think is it is it an, is it just in the first one, or does he have to deal with it earlier than that too? I think it was the first one is him trying to what fix his parents' marriage and and him existing and all that sort of thing. And I think the second and third ones are fixing his kids, and then I don't know. I, I think I mixed. I know the second one. I think is him fixing his own kids. Well, right. And the, the third one is I think them going way back in the past for some other thing. Right, he doesn't have to deal with it. I think I do believe Leah Thompson is still in that in that third one. But you're right. In the second one, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's as of course that's this is the future. In the second one, uh, and uh, L- uh, his mother has gotten uh, caught up with Biff, I believe, uh, who is now uh, has created a, a dystopian a dystopian version of Hilldale or where, wherever they live. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I believe that's all true. Yeah. Now let's. Uh, uh, how is this uh, um, um, similar or different? Are, are we already into the recorded portion? Do humans actually want to listen to the conversation we're having right now? The uh, you know uh, today I was reading some um, you know as a man does on a Friday morning I was reading some of uh, Emerson's spiritual laws. Yeah, and uh, as you do, yeah, as one does. And uh, Emerson says, uh, but doing your own work, you make the need. Uh, you make the need felt, which you so you actually create demand for the thing you're supplying. You create the taste by which you're enjoyed, and that's what that's what this that's what's happening right now. Now, um, are, we, are we talking about numbers? No, but we're going. It's quality. It's not quantity. It's quality, Kylie. Which is why I'm going to hang up now. Yeah. <laughs> now listen. Uh, uh, just as the future is of some concern uh, to Michael J. Fox's character in the movie Back to the Future, uh, the future. And anticipating it or forecasting it is, at some level, is uh, of great concern to you as a prospect analyst. Yeah, and I think that's it's something like I was saying. A lot of times, there's these sort of conscious and unconscious thoughts. That I guess early on in my uh, sort of baseball prognosticating career, uh, uh, you know, interning for teams and getting coffee and making copies and things like that, you don't realize it, but it, I guess as a few years go by, you kind of sort of put pieces together that 
this whole office infrastructure, scouting, the GM, the all all the baseball operations stuff, all the way down to coaching and the affiliates and all that, is basically trying to figure out a better way to tell what's going to happen in the future. Like that's basically all it is. Because uh, you know the minor league teams and the draft, like nobody cares how good the guy is now. Everyone can kind of agree generally how good a player is at the moment. There's really not a lot of scouting skill to do that. The, the trick is guessing what he's going to be and then training him for what he's going to be and then create a team around what they're going to be. And when you think of it like that and look at some of the, you know, guys going back to sort of the money pre-Moneyball era of the way things were done, if you realize your entire business was basically geared around predicting the future, selling tickets based off of predicting the future, like all these various things are just based on this one thing, it doesn't seem incredibly scientific. And so I'd like to think that's sort of the the germ that sort of uh, got the whole Moneyball thing going, that these are, you know, borderline billion-dollar companies whose entire business is predicting the future. And it's, you know, a lot of it's gut feel and guessing and sort of best practices that we've thought of but not really rigorously gone through. And so I, I, I don't know, I don't want to try to make myself sound too high and mighty, but I, I like to try to think about that. Uh, sort of better ways to do that and kind of think a little bit differently. But if you read, you know, you read my article, so fan graphs, it would seem in- incredibly sort of uh, quaint and old-timey, uh, the, way, <laughs> the way that I'm doing it there. Well, no, but I guess, I guess basically, um, and, and I think that your pieces at the site reflect this, right, you're trying to examine um, elements. And, and, and I should say, and I really want to talk about this, um, you helped me, like, in I think we just talked for 15 minutes, you showed me uh, some video of uh, pitching mechanics for some guys you'd seen down in Florida, and you and you gave me a, a sense of of what to look for at different points. For example, in a pitcher's windup and release point, etc. That was excellent. What you're looking at when you're doing that, though, and when you're looking at players in real time or on video, is you're looking for clues. Uh, uh, you're looking for elements of that player that do or do not correlate with uh, future projection. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, I guess since you mentioned uh, me pointing out some of the, the video stuff to you uh, for the pitchers, uh, especially, and I, I mean, this is any sort of confidential whatever, but I know with every team I've been with, we've talked about uh, pitcher injuries. Like, that seems to be the thing that everyone agrees is basically this black box that nobody really understands, and there's some, you know, some general principles people agree on about, uh, you know, how, how late you should stay in a game, generally how many innings you should throw, uh, these sorts of mechanics are good or bad, but, but nobody has any hard and fast rules. And the the reason, I guess, when you you know drill down that that step deeper than most or many people are thinking, is it comes down to genetics. That if you you know you look at Tim Lincecum, come you know an example a lot of guys like to point out uh, has we'll say idiosyncratic uh, delivery and uh, sort of flexibility and arm action and all these sorts of things are unique. None of them are in the territory of super red flag, stay away from this. So it's all sort of acceptable. It's just weird. And if you were to try to make generic tall pitcher of, say, John Lackey do what Lincecum does in his delivery, he would probably get hurt because he doesn't have the the genetics that give him sort of the body structure and flexibility and frame and things like that to make that sort of thing work. So if you're going to use sort of a one-size-fits-all rubric for for pitching mechanics, you're going to say 90 to 99% of pitchers, if they were asked to do what Tim Linscombe does, would probably get hurt, not because it inherently gets you hurt, but because they just don't have the, the God-given ability to make, you know, to accomplish what they're trying to do while doing that, which is why no one does it. 
so then when you see that, you say, okay, this doesn't work for 99% of pitchers or whatever number it is. Some people, uh, I would say many teams, and the reason he lasted till 10th in the draft is because many teams thought this, if 90-something percent of pitchers can't do that, then let's just stay away from that guy. Or even stronger, he won't be able to succeed doing that. And a lot, I'd say a lot of people in the game still think that way, which is fair because in the first round, if you swing and miss and the guy gets you know terribly injured, things like that, you get fired. So there's a lot of sort of evolutionary thinking as far as you know getting chased by a cheetah on the savanna. If you get caught, you die. If you draft ones to come and he falls apart, you picked an unusual guy, he fell apart, you get fired. So that that all sort of makes sense. But right, right. One of the players we were looking at was Marcus Stroman, who has some of, some similarities to once to come. And so I guess that's sort of a a look into uh, my attempt to try to take the uh, the more traditional methods of scouting and things like that and try to go sort of a step deeper or maybe just include some other things to try to get the answer a little more accurately than just, most guys can't do this, let's take him off the board. Right, and that's what I thought was interesting. You said, um, and you will say, because, so there's a prototype for a pitcher's body, right? Like, ideally, uh, what, he's 6'5", um, lanky when I'd he's say, younger. I'd say, like, 6'3 to 6'5", if they're young, you want them to be projectable, so 180 to 200. Once you're in the big leagues, you want maybe 225 to 230 to handle a workload. It's pretty much everybody agrees on that. Who, who are some guys that, that have that or, or prospects that have had that and, and you know before or now? Uh, well, like Jake Odorizzi, I know when he was drafted out of high school, uh, he was a field sport guy, football scholarship, and pretty much, you know, the ideal 6'4", 190, what, you know, roughly thereabouts area, and has slowly filled out and added velocity and sort of progressed across the board and has basically become what he was drafted to become. And we'll see if that, you know, that materializes in the big leagues. But I guess he's, he's one of many examples of sort of the athletic, projectable, uh, lean, uh, high school guy without a ton of polish, but shows you all the elements you need, and then fully makes the progression. So I guess he's sort of the would it be the platonic ideal? Maybe you can tell me if I'm using the right term. No, you are absolutely yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so he, he would he would be the guy. He's the the anti comer the anti Stroman. He's exactly what everybody's looking for. All thirty teams are trying to draft that guy. And then but so Stroman is different, and we should say Marcus Stroman pitched. Uh, was it Duke? Was it? Okay, so so Stroman was a, a pitcher at Duke. I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he had excellent numbers at Duke. Uh, but there were some que- some questions about his uh, capacity to translate that to the major leagues, and what were those concerns? Uh, well, a lot of times with guys his size, uh, you'll see either the performance is lacking in some way. I mean, usually if you're drafted that highly and you're small, you're going to have to performance, but maybe it'll be a lower strikeout rate or a higher walk rate. Like, well, even Lincecum, I think, walked like five per nine in his draft year. Uh, so, so even the performance, it was high strikeout. Uh, if I remember correctly, it had pretty good ground ball rates, uh, low walks, like had everything you wanted performance-wise. And then you look at the stuff, the stuff's all there. And so if he looked like Jake Odorizzi, then he would be in the top ten. Uh, but instead, he, you know, gets comp to Tom Gordon, uh, just sort of given his stature. And because, again, using sort of the Olympic example, because there are maybe two or three successful, like, mid-rotation or better big league starters that look like he looks. Uh, you know, Oswald, Tim Hudson, that's, you know, you'd be stretching it to think of another short righty. Chris, Chris uh, Medlin? Yeah, okay. There's a more uh, <laughs> a more recent example. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a very short list, and so similar to the length of commotion, it's very few guys that look like this 
not considering anything else, just looking at his body, have ever been successful big league starters for a number of reasons. You don't get, you know, playing on your fastball, so you don't get as many swings and misses. Uh, your body can't handle the workload. Uh, maybe you don't have the stamina to last late in the game. There's a lot of, of you know, useful, good, important, sort of quantifiable uh, objective things that the shorter guys just don't have and can't have. And so you're, you're basically saying he's got a lot of bars to clear that a lot of other guys don't have. So, and then you look at the track record, there's not a lot of guys that have done it. So you say, okay, some more loads come. 90-something percent of guys that would do that would get hurt. So regardless of all the other stuff, let's go ahead and, you know, move him down the board, take him off the board, offer him less money, you know, whatever the, whatever the less consideration would be. Okay. And so, that, and so that's the thing that, that with Stroman now, but what is it that, for example, you seeing Stroman, uh, what is it that uh, makes you think, well, uh, some of these concerns may not be entirely valid? So, so what I was sort of referring to before is normally when you see a guy that size and he'll be in relief, there is some current present thing. Like I said before, it's easy for scouts to say what a guy is currently. It doesn't take a lot of ability. Normally there is something currently to make you say he can't start, whether it's he's been hurt, uh, he doesn't keep his velocity late in the games. Uh, his fastball's flat and doesn't get swings and misses, even though the raw stuff is good. Uh, you know, all the, he would already be one of the things that I'm mentioning. He's already 21, and he's probably already at a, you know, high A, double A level as a starter. So he's getting close to the big leagues. But other than some people that say his fastball looks a little too flat, which is hard to say with certainty until he's facing, you know, triple A big league hitters and you sort of have some performance data to look at to confirm that, uh, he hasn't shown any of those signs yet. And and if you were to look at guys, uh, you know, a different way, look at Oswald and Hudson and those guys and say, what did they look like when they were this age and at this level? What did they look like? He's as good or better than they were at the same stage. So even though it's rare, I'm saying there's, you know, there's the genetics come into play where Lincecum can do that because he has the, the – disadvantages to make some people don't like him, but then the advantages to make him be able to make that motion work. Oswald and, and Hudson and Medlin and I think Stroman uh, have the the necessary physical uh, abilities uh, to, you know, not get hurt despite being smaller, to, you know, have the zip on the fastball to get over not having the plane, those sorts of things. It's something you don't know until you let him do it, and I, I think it may be a mistake for whether it's a prognosticator or a scout or the Blue Jays saying how they want to handle him developmentally to say, well, he's probably going to be this. So let's just take this, you know, high end scenario off the table because it's probably not going to happen. But there hasn't been any present evidence as far as I know, maybe they know something I don't know, uh, that that's going to happen. It's just, it's all speculative basically. Now you, you brought me actually through, uh, through Stroman on video. Uh, you showed me, and there were a couple, there were a couple things that you said are the, the sort of, I don't know if they're crisis points, but sort of checkpoints for you, a set of criteria that you like to go through um, for each pitcher. Um, you know, par- parts during his motion, for example, where you like to freeze frame. I was wondering if we can maybe just go over a couple of those. Okay, yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, obviously I'm seeing the guy first. So you watch him in, in, uh, in full speed and sort of take notes at the game. One of the things I've found, especially like instructs where guys will go an inning or two, is you have to basically catch every pitch to get a good feel for their stuff and their command, so you can't pay as much attention to just watching their delivery. So I like to take a couple uh, pitches of video, and then I can go back and look at it frame by frame, and there's obviously some things you just can't see in full speed, uh, but, you know, where he where his arm is at different junctures of his delivery. 
So I'll, you know, like I, like I showed you, uh, you know, I'll have the, the straight on from behind home plate angle. And, you know, I guess before you get to the balance point where they're, you know, in the, in the windup, uh, you kind of just get a good feel for their, their body, their looseness, uh, their general balance. And cause a lot of guys will get sort of off balance to start with, never really get to a balance point and are just sort of all over the place to start with. And then once you get to the balance point, then you can from there, uh, figure out sort of their tempo, how quickly their arm and their body is moving, how in sync the, the hips and the front leg is with the arm. You can get a, a very good, you can get a good look at arm action, obviously from behind home plate, uh, but you can obviously get a better look at it when you're going frame by frame and see exactly where where the elbow is in relation to the shoulder uh, and the arm stroke. Uh, you can see how much they tilt their body when they're releasing the ball. You can see where their arm is in the arm stroke when their foot hits the ground, which is when they're sort of anchored into the ground. And so if their arm is really far behind, but their feet, both feet are anchored at their foot strike, then that means their body's sort of torquing. Uh, whereas if the arm is sort of close to delivering the ball when both feet are anchored, then that's sort of less torquing. And that's one of the things that it's hard to quantify, but, you know, generally makes sense that it's going to slowly wear down an arm or whether it's an elbow or a shoulder or just sort of the upper torso and oblique and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it would just sort of be the balance, the timing, how the body syncs together, and then you, you kind of see the, the release point, the tilt of the body at release, and uh, and sort of the finish and the effort. And I guess that was a lot of things to say. But I guess all those sort of uh, all put together. Usually if one of those things is off, it's going to make something else off. If they're landing on their heel, uh, that's going to make them off balance and twist off. So if you miss one of them, you're probably going to catch the other and see what the issue is. And a lot of times it's very small things, especially in instructors and guys that were just drafted out of high school. It's all very correctable. A lot of uh, tempo and balance things are things that are going to be addressed in their first off seasons. You can't kill them too much. But uh, when there's bad arm action or the body's all over the place, uh, once you fix those sorts of things, a lot of times it affects the stuff. So if there's a lot of things off, then you kind of have to – Pay less attention to the scouting report because things are going to change when they fix that to be able to make him last longer as a starter and things like that. Yeah. Now, uh, another pitcher we looked at whose mechanics, um, well, first of all, they appeared even to have evolved in a short amount of time because you had a, you had him from the beginning of the year and then you know a little bit later and then in instructs. Um, but I'm talking about uh, Houston Astros draftee, I believe from the most recent draft, um, uh, Lance McCullers, a right-handed pitcher. Um, now, yeah. just in terms of this, uh, you know, looking at his uh, his mechanic, et cetera, I know that um, we um, one notable point uh, during his during his uh, motion uh, was his release point. Uh, we noted that his head uh, was not uh, looking at first base at all, or, or sorry, it was looking at first base, which is a problem. It was uh, it was not looking at the plate, and uh, there was a sort of thing where because he uh, he was coming over the top, perhaps more. Uh, more than uh, other pitchers do, uh, he had sort of displaced his his head and shoulders such that he was uh, he was not balanced uh, upon release. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that, speak to McCullers and, and what he sort of represents mechanically. Yeah, so that's something. Uh, I guess that's one of the things that's very easy to see in in full speed, especially you know if you miss it the first couple pitches. Once you hit the second third inning, you're going to start noticing that his commands off. You're going to pay a little closer attention. You're going to see. Oh, his head's jerking all over the place. And that's something scouts, especially early in the season, we're all like, this guy's got big stuff, delivery's not great, command's all over the place. And like I was saying earlier, 
you say, oh, we're going to fix the delivery, fix the command, the things that are fixable, a lot of times when you're doing that, there's a risk and reward. And so if you take away the, the risky things mechanically that cost you command and may cost you health, they're going to take away the stuff. So then some teams are getting off because he's throwing mid to upper 90s, uh, probably a 65 or 70 curveball on a 2080 scale. So like, he'll still be fine if he loses a little stuff, but uh, maybe he's the kind of guy that uh, that can't make the adjustment. Because uh, McCullough is one of those guys that, uh, you know, any guy that throws 95 plus is going to have a little bit of risk in his delivery. His arm is going to be a little late uh, to catch up with his body, meaning uh, it'll it'll basically be uh, behind him as opposed to coming over the top when he's foot strike and the torque of his body turning while his arm is still behind will make his arm speed up, which creates velocity, but also obviously puts torque on the arm, which unless you have amazing uh, genetics that help you to withstand this happening thousands and thousands of times, will cause you to get hurt. So uh, he is probably always going to be a guy that does that to some degree, because, you know, once you've done that a gazillion times, you're just going to keep doing it. Uh, but other things in his delivery, uh, and, and they were they were subtle, but I was able to point them out to you about uh, how he landed, the amount of effort when he let go of the ball, uh, how much head movement there was on his command uh, and balance and how much he twisted off after he let the ball go and things like that, all improved subtly throughout the year to where when he was at Instructs, he was more of a 90 to 94 with uh, some arm side run and didn't hit the backstop once, whereas the first time I saw him this season, I think he was 93 to 98. I think he hit three batters, hit the backstop five times, and was just generally all over the place. So he was one of the guys that basically showed, even with high school instruction, uh, that he can see that there's a problem, he can fix it, and that he can still have big stuff while doing that, which uh, is rare. And so a lot of teams basically got off him halfway of the year because they're like, we, this guy's going to be expensive uh, and we, we're not sure if it's worth the risk trying to figure out if he's going to be able to make adjustments. But at the end of the year, he made a lot of the adjustments he needed to make already and showed that he's that he can do that and still be an effective pitcher, which a lot of guys that are that were like he was early in the year aren't able to do. And that's a lot of times when you see guys get a lot of money and they say the delivery's rough and, you know, a generic fan will be like, oh, well, I can fix that. Well, a lot of times you can't, and that's kind of where the scouts come in, talking to the player and watching him and talking to his coaches and figuring out if this is the kind of guy that can make that adjustment to reach his potential. Now, we talked about that, uh, especially that point um, where the pitcher's arm is when his uh, – when his he has, what is it, the, the foot strike, when the foot strike occurs? Yeah. And and it is sort of where it is. Is it – you know, does he have it um, – is it elevated and, and back so that he's putting a lot of pressure on his shoulder and elbow, or is it more square – such that he's not uh, putting that much stress on on his arm. Um, I'm curious uh, for you uh, if you could give us an idea of the type of pitcher who maybe is able to produce velocity that you've seen um, produce velocity without necessarily putting that sort of strain. Um, like I, I'll just give an example of someone who might be that. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. But I always thought watching Neftali Feliz, especially when he first came up, it did not seem to be a particularly um, stressful uh, wind-up, but of course this is full speed or whatever, but he did not seem to be, um, I guess, uh, exerting himself unduly relative to the sort of velocity he was producing. That's just one guy that came to, to my mind, but I'm curious as to you know, what you think either about uh, Feliz or, or any other pitchers who might be able to do that without that sort of stress. 
Yeah, and I did, you know, I haven't, you know, broken down frame-by-frame video of everyone in the big leagues, but one way to sort of identify those guys without having to do that is looking at the effort and the delivery. So, for instance, a guy like Feliz, uh, just physics-wise, he's got, you know, longer levers, he's a quick twitch guy, his arm moves quickly, and he looks like he's playing catch at 95. Whereas a guy like McCullers, when he would throw 95, you could tell he was trying to throw 95, and you could see that there was sort of... uh uh, extra effort was expended to get there, and you could see that in the uh, in the excess uh, inefficient uh, side-to-side movement that helped him create his velocity would uh, manifest itself moving side-to-side after it delivers it. So as a cheat, if you can't see uh, frame-by-frame what, the, what their arm is doing in the back of the timing is, you can look at what they do at the end as sort of an analog for what they're doing at the beginning. So the guys that are throwing, that have long arms, that look smooth, that are quick twitch guys, that you know have quick arms, and can throw 95 and locate it and look comfortable and look like they're throwing catch, uh, I'm sure those guys are generally going to be the guys that are the ones with the easy velocity. And and, and then going back to the Lincecum thing, uh, he has to do what he does to create that velocity because while he is gifted with you know a quick arm and good athlete and those sorts of things. Uh, his arms are shorter. And it's just like simple physics. If your arm is shorter, then that means your the, the end of the lever, the hand, is going to be moving slower, whereas if your arm is longer, then to keep up with how quick your shoulder is moving, the farther out your arm is, the faster it's going. And that's why that's another one of the reasons why uh, scouts like big, tall guys, because when they have big, long arms and he's throwing, you know, 85 when he's 16, they're going to go, oh, he's going to throw 92 because his arms are so long. So once he kind of grows up and his shoulder moves a lot quicker, his arm's going to move even faster than a shorter guy would. Uh, oh, oh so. yeah, that's. I guess that's. Yes, I don't know why that didn't uh, ever occur to me. Um, and I guess you also have the advantage with a guy who has long arms of, if not, um, uh, I guess absolute velocity, also apparent velocity. If you're that much closer to the to the plate, that's a, that's it's sort of a, an exponential effect almost. That's another one, and then also they tend to have bigger hands, which you can see with Pedro with his long fingers is very easy to manipulate the ball and get movement. So. Right. Now you're talking about plane, you're talking about velocity, you're talking about perceived velocity, you're talking about movement, and you're also talking about when you talk about that Oderizzi guy, you're, uh, that sort of body, you're also looking at projection and sort of physical development, like all the all the stuff that you want to be in your favor. If you're an area scout and you've recommended a guy to your cross-checker and your scouting director, you want him to have as many things in his favor for getting better. Because uh, like I said, everybody knows how good everybody is at the moment. Uh, those are all the things you want. So that's why scouts always love tall guys because it makes them look better because there's more ways for them to succeed. So if you were if you were the area scout seeing Stroman, I mean, obviously, a lot of people had seen him, but if you were arguing Stroman's case, um, despite those, despite the fact that he possessed those qualities that might um, be considered red flags in you know in a certain portion of the scouting community, what would be your pitch essentially? Well, I think I gave it to you earlier. I, I think uh, some people, and I say myself early in my baseball career, would be skeptical that you can, you know, reason with these guys that are running drafts that are, you know, gut feel guys and all sorts of things. But uh, I've seen plenty of guys that I thought were very uh, old school uh, grab stack guys out of the office and claim them for six months to be their draft stack guy uh, because they've sort of seen the light. And, I mean, you would be there are guys that I never thought would do that that are basically have full-time stat guys just doing draft stuff for them all year. Uh, so they're they're not crazy. Even though, even though they've been operating on a little more gut field than the average statistician would be, 
uh, you know, scouts like using radar guns and stopwatches and having information. And so once they are convinced that this sort of information can be used, then, you know, they're open to listening to it. So I would, you know, I would tell them pretty much how I just told you. I'd say, look, the odds are against them. There's not a guy that looks like this. It's sort of unprecedented. But if there's going to be a guy that's unprecedented, he's going to stand out and look weird. And this guy sort of stands out and looks weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of guys that look like him. And look at the guys that have succeeded that look like this. What have they been like at this age, at this juncture? If he's there or surpassed them, he's already, uh, you know, got past a lot of hurdles that his uh, stature has held him back from. Uh, so he presumably is, you know, sort of beating expectations already. And he looks to be uh, on the way to becoming what all of these, these Oswald, these Medlin, Hudson type guys have been doing. So instead of looking at sort of the downside, like a lot of times scouts talk about this guy likes guys, this guy doesn't like guys. Mm-hmm. Basically meaning does the scout tend to look on the bright side or tend to look on the downside. I'd hope my boss is a guy that likes guys. Uh, and I'd say, look, you can look really smart if you take a guy other people weren't high on mm-hmm. and he turns into a number two starter. I mean, that's kind of gets you promoted. So it's like you, you've got a chance to take a little risk here. Even if he doesn't work out, you get a good reliever. He's put to the majors. He'll give you a return. Uh for, for me, that's the kind of guy I want to get on that has sort of the higher floor and also still has the high upside and is old enough you're going to get the return quickly. And I think even though that may, again, some people may think that those are uh, best terms and a way of thinking that a lot of scouting directors don't accept, I can guarantee you all the ones that I know would. And and I've made those those cases and I've heard people make those cases. A lot of times they work. So I don't think it's much different than what I told you. Well, what – um. What, what's a guy you've seen recently? We're t- discussing this this idea of easy velocity. Um, um, what's a guy you've seen recently uh, who um, does produce some velocity? Uh, and this is someone we haven't mentioned yet who does p- sort of produce that velocity without putting that sort of stress on his arm. Uh, I'm, putting huh. on the, I'm clearly putting you on the spot. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, trying to think, I'm thinking of the guys that I've seen that have thrown the hardest, and a lot of them have some effort. So uh, it's. It would be, uh, okay, here's one. Uh, I was going to say, when you talk about the Feliz kind of guy, the guy that's going to have easy velocity and command is going to be incredibly gifted and is probably going to be one of the top prospects in baseball. Uh, Jose Fernandez, uh, the Marlins, I saw him twice this year uh, in the minors for Jupiter. And he has some effort to his delivery, and there's, uh, you know, there's some things that iron out, but actually between the first and second time I saw him, uh, I wrote about him for ESPN and said these are three or four things I don't like about his delivery, just sort of little stuff that are fix- fixable. And I think he fixed three out of the four things by two weeks later when I saw him again. So I, either he's reading what I'm writing or, <laughs> or, or you know, his pitching coach is thinking the same thing I was thinking or or whatever. Uh, and so yeah, while there is some, some effort, uh, early in the game there there won't be a lot of effort. And he, I think I've seen him run up to 99 before. And he gets a lot, he gets tight rotation on his breaking ball. It's probably a 65 breaking ball. And it's, uh, he's one of those guys that has some uh, some effort in the delivery because that's sort of the way he chooses to do it. Uh, but when he has his free and easy delivery early on, and I think his delivery will get you know, freer and easier as he gets older, uh, I think he's one of those guys that can command a fastball at 95 as a starter throughout the game without having to exert himself or do any sort of trickster things to go side to side and torque up his body and do things like that, which the majority of guys in the minors that you see through a 95 are doing some sort of trick. Right. Now, we should say uh, Jose Fernandez, I, I think you mentioned it, Marlins prospect, 
um, I, I believe originally from Cuba, but came over to this country, I think went to high school here, and then was exactly, taken, yeah. is that right, and then was taken in the first round? Yeah, he was a mid-first round pick, I want to say 17th or 18th overall out of a Tampa high school, I believe, two years ago, and this year he was in low A and high A, and I'm going to assume next year he'll be in, uh, in double A. He moved, moved very quickly and sort of found himself, uh, found, you know, found his body, found his delivery, found his stuff all very quickly, and He's also a little old for his draft class. I think he's already 20. So I, it seems like, from what I know and from talking to some other guys, the Marlins are uh, ready to uh, start him at Double A and possibly get him at the big woods quickly and you know start getting a return. Yeah. Now I actually will have to say, uh, of course, I, I don't have any of the sort of uh, I don't have the sort of credentials that you do or the uh, sort of bank of knowledge, I guess, uh, for reference. But I, I was able to uh, on the backfields. Uh, this past spring, I was able to uh, in Jupiter. I was um, was able to see Fernandez pitch, and uh, uh, was impressed by him. And, and it was really the first instance I'd seen of like a of a of like a truly plus breaking ball that close. You know, just like behind the screen there uh, on the backfields. And it was uh, uh, it was uh, eye opening, I guess I should say. It, um, just the amount of movement it had on it, in the, in, uh, relative to the distance it was traveling, was surprising to me. It's, I still remember the first time I saw a breaking ball that good, too. It's just making it sound like it's our first time. Wow, it was, it was really special. I, I was talking to her for a long time, and Jose Fernandez broke off a curveball for me. And it, it was... Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like fireworks. Like, you've heard people talk about it. You've seen it on TV. You, you kind of have an idea of what it is. But then, like, yeah, sitting behind home plate, maybe up against the fence, like, kind of getting up close. Yeah. And then you see it. A lot of times, well, I remember Fernandez is from Tampa, and I saw him the first time pitch uh, in Tampa against the Yankees affiliate. And so it obviously has a lot of... Uh, fan, you know, uh, friends and family in the crowd, and a lot of them were sitting near the scouts to sort of get a good look. And his first breaking ball, I, I know all these people have seen him pitch before, and they were all like, "Whoa!" And I was like, "That wasn't just them being like nice or like cheering for him. It was like genuine sort of delight and glee at seeing something like that. It was like watching someone throw a wiffle ball really well. You're like, "Oh, that's really cool." Except I can't believe someone does that with a baseball. Right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the sort of lateral movement it had on it was very surprising to me. Um, yeah, his, his is a little unusual that it's more of a three quarters. A lot of scouts will call it a slur just because of the tilt it has on it. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the speed is consistent with a, a curveball. He just happens to, the tilt of a curveball basically comes down to how they tilt their wrist when they let go of it in combination with their arm action or their uh, their arm slot. So three quarters breakball isn't any better or worse or any different of a pitch. It's really just sort of the way they they best throw it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was great. Um, uh, what was I thinking? Oh, um, well, oh, so you, so you're down, so you're down at Florida. I wish we could have said this at the beginning. You're in Tampa Bay. Um, what, what did you sort of use? Um, because you've also done quite a bit of writing for ESPN on prospects. Um, what do you sort of use as your? Uh, I mean, wh- who are you able to see? What levels and and um, how far will you go from Tampa, et cetera? Uh, well, I drove a lot this year for ESPN. Uh, the the sort of span of my travel was. Uh, Birmingham to the west, uh, Charlotte to the north, and Miami to the south. Oh, my, my. <laughs> yeah, that was all driving. All there right. was actually one time where I went from a game for Corey Seager and then drove, and the next night was at a game in Miami for Nick Travieso. And I actually, there was one scout that was at both of those games who obviously flew. <laughs> he was uh. asking me, like, what flight I took? Were you on my flight? I was like, no, I drove. And he's like, you're insane. Um <laughs> 
But yeah, around around Tampa, uh, you said the Florida State League. There's uh, Clearwater, Dunedin, Tampa, Lakeland, Bradenton, all very close. So basically, the whole league's going to come over here, you know, within a month. Uh, you got the GCL, so there's, they kind of do them in 14 pods. So there's basically two of the pods on the West Coast are right here. So I can see eight of, you know, basically half the league pretty easily. Uh, you know, obviously the same thing with extended spring training before the draft. Uh, they'll all be there. Uh, you obviously have high school and college, so Gainesville's two hours away. Uh, Tallahassee's uh, three hours, three and a half hours away. Miami's about four hours away. Uh, you got USF right here, UCF. Orlando is two hours away, so kind of all the major conferences and uh, teams are kind of in the area. And obviously high school, Tampa and Orlando are, are both really good in sort of the general areas, including Sarasota and Daytona and things like that, uh, are all pretty easy to see. Uh, so, yeah, and then also you can get to AA and AAA up in Alabama and uh, Georgia pretty easily, too, and sort of the southern parts of Tennessee. So I was able to see, I believe, every – level of the minor leagues this year, along with high school and college, and even saw some Dominican kids come for a, a workout. So I kind of – I'd say this and Arizona uh, are probably the two spots because of spring training. You can kind of get access to almost all the different levels. And also Team Canada came down, which I guess is a different level, but they come down here a lot too. Who was that, sorry? Uh, the team, team Canada, the high school uh, Canadian oh. team. Oh, right. Uh, they do a lot of traveling. Uh, so they'll come through and do sort of a tour through all of the uh, the spring training sites and – early college games, and there's also a lot of college tournaments and high school tournaments. You get a lot of teams to travel here. Remember, there was uh, a couple top prospects for this this year's upcoming draft from uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, Virginia. We're all coming through, and I happen to have a list of juniors handy. So I'd go to a tournament and say, oh, I'll hang around for this game and see this guy. So I saw Austin Meadows as a junior, and there's zero scouts to his game, and he's now the number one or number two guy in the draft for next year. I remember I talked to his parents and talked to his coach, and they were like, so excited to talk to somebody that like wanted to talk about their son, and I'm like, you guys realize there's gonna be 40 scouts at every game he plays starting about a month from now. And they're like, well, they haven't come yet. I mean, everyone tells us they will, and I'm like, no, no, trust me, they will. And now I'm sure they're sick of everybody. Right. Uh, yeah, that uh, that's funny. You know, and actually, um, I know that um, when I was in high school, uh, junior and senior year, my team uh, also went to Florida, and uh, as you can imagine, uh, Milton Academy of the Independent School League uh, in and around suburban Boston. Uh, we had a number of scouts uh, at our at our games. Yeah, and especially in the Northeast, you you got sort of a handful of schools that are that are pumping out talent that everyone pays attention to because it's obviously not quite as densely populated. But yeah, I know in that, I guess sort of these private schools around Boston tend to all, almost every year there's going to be a couple guys. I mean, number one, pop in number one. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, I want to ask you this one question. Um, you put, you said, uh, you described Fernandez's curveball as a 65, right? Uh, now, when you say 65, is that is that present or is that future? Uh, it's probably a, basically when you do the present and future, it typically, especially in the minor leagues, future is the best that he shows you that night. So let's say he'll throw a couple of 50s, a lot of 55s and 60s, and then a handful of 65. You would call that a present 55 or 60 and a future 65. Ah, uh, okay, that's interesting. Because we started off sort of with this idea of, uh, of forecasting the future, uh, you know, and, and you made, I, I thought, actually, uh, the rather interesting point of, you know, that 
maybe baseball operations staff is essentially that's their concern is the future. Uh, some some of those futures are you know next month um, if it's acquiring big league talent, or you know it could be uh, you know five, six, seven years from now if you're looking especially at an international signing. Um, and, but that, and that I, I, I can say sitting in those rooms around the trade deadline, everyone throws out names, and it's you know this guy is the future sixty in low A that doesn't speak English, and this guy's a future 50 in AAA ready to go right now, and he's a pitcher, and you know, you know, the Dominican guy's a hitter. Like, it's it's very difficult trying to compare the pros and cons of two guys that are completely different in every way. Well, that's the thing I was thinking of is that, especially if you have a young guy like that, uh, like I could, you know, like Michael Lenoa, right? Like Michael Lenoa, who, uh, of course, was the, uh, the huge signing out of uh, the Dominican maybe, what, three, four years ago, five, five years ago now? Um, oh yeah, I think it's five. Yeah, five. Uh, well, he had to be added. He was added to the forty man, so that's five, uh, five or six. Uh, um, he was given over four million dollars by the A's. Then um, you could say, oh well, he's a future. He has a future sixty-five uh, uh, breaking ball or whatever. But I guess I, the thing I'm curious about is when you're saying something like that, especially with a guy who's so far removed. Is there a way for you also to assess the? The chance that he hits that mark, like, or like, a, is there a probabilistic uh, way of expressing that? Yeah, actually, I remember a conversation I had with a scout at a game uh, this year, and it was we we're watching the guy Robert Whalen, as a high school kid from Haines City, signed with the Mets for 100 grand. I think he went in, like the seventh grade round, and uh, so he was throwing, he was throwing a breaking ball, and it was mostly 50s. He threw in some 55s. And so I'm kind of sitting there, and I go, you know, present 50, future 55. It's, it's a pretty easy one. And then at the very end of the game, uh, he threw a curveball in the dirt that looked completely different than all the rest of them and had basically it looked like a guy that had a plus or 60 curveball or maybe even a 65 that didn't uh, sort of uh, have his release point down, so he threw it in the dirt. And I look at the guy, and I'm like, all right, now what do you do with that? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, all right, well, that looked like a guy throwing a plus curveball, completely different than every other curveball that guy had thrown this tonight. So at some level, the idea is you're supposed to say the future grade is whatever was the best thing he threw that night. Because, you know, that's in the tank. He's done that before. It's like a skill set he has. He did it once, but he was in the dirt. So do we even know if that's repeatable? And he goes, <laughs> he goes, for me, if he throws it once late in the game, looks like by accident in the dirt. For me, that's not the thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's not for me either. But he goes, if a scout really likes that guy and he wants to sort of juice him up his board and get him drafted for whatever reason, uh, he'll, he'll put him in as a 60 curveball and say, I saw it, and he's technically not wrong. And the technically is in the tank, but he did do it. But uh, it doesn't seem like a thing. So uh, there's different sort of levels of scrutiny depending on, like, if you're in double-A, and a guy throws a 50 and a 55 slider, but you see one that looked pretty good and say so you put a 60 on it, that's that's sort of reckless. Like, he's probably, if he's not showing it to you in double-A, he probably can't do it. Whereas in high school, there are guys where they'll show a 50 and 55 curveball, but you put future 60 because it looks like he has the elements. Like, he'll show you the different elements. He has the body that suggests his arm might speed up, which suggests his curveball rotation will speed up. So sometimes it's speculative, and sometimes it's just sort of a straight, he did this, he did that once or twice, and so he's going to do this later. And I think it's understood based on sort of the level of uh, how far along the player is, how old he is, what level he's at. It's sort of implicit uh, how many times he showed it to you. If it's a 17-year-old guy, if he's your 60, you know he may not have even thrown a 60. If it's a 23-year-old guy in AAA with a 60, 
you know he showed a couple of 60s that night. And so I, I think that that sort of math is sort of uh, assumed in, in the way you present it. Now, with a situation like that where you see a, a high school pitcher snap one off and it, it does appear to be different than all the others, it, it, would anyone go up to the guy and be like, hey, what was the deal with that that curveball you threw like towards the end of the game? Like, Did you do something different mechanically? You know, do you could you repeat if that? Jerry if you Seinfeld had... was a scout. He would say, "What's the deal with that curveball?" <laughs> if Jerry Seinfeld were a scout, uh, first of all, totally under the radar, no one would see him, <laughs> no one would notice. Um, uh, no, but how would you? Uh, yeah, uh... yeah, no, that's that's what the scout is there for. That that's something that uh, that a guy that's writing sometimes won't be able to get as much access to the player as the scout will for obvious reasons, uh, especially in you know Wayland's instance is more a more rural high school, so it's it's going to be a little, a little tougher to get. Or, or sometimes easier yet, depending on the situation. Um, but yeah, the good scout goes into, rather than just hanging the 60 on him because he kind of wants him and decides he'll round up. The good scout uh, puts the 55, notes that there was a 60 in the dirt, and then goes and talks to him, asks him, did, did you change your grip? You know what happened? Because a lot of times the, the pitcher won't know, and obviously the, you know the, the fans and parents sitting down the baseline aren't going to notice either. She's like, oh, there's another curveball. Uh, so, yeah, you, you try to figure out the elements of why that happened. And sometimes if the player doesn't know, he didn't change the grip. It's just sort of that's what happened when he threw it in the dirt. It just happened to look better. Then, yeah, then you can discount it for what I and this other guy assumed it was. Uh, but there was there's other instances where I remember I saw Carlos Carrasco, uh, who's now with the Indians in the big leagues, uh, was pitching in high A for the Phillies a few years back. And he was doing a similar thing where it's all 50 and 55 breaking balls. And then his last pitch of the game, as a strikeout to end the game, was probably a 65, at least a full grade better than anything he'd thrown that night, breaking ball thrown right down the middle for a strike. And all the scouts kind of look at each other like, oh, great, what are we, like, we've seen 24 curveballs. We had this thing nailed down exactly what this guy was today. And because he's you know, high enough, we can pretty reasonably nail down what he's going to be in the future. And then all of a sudden he throws this thing, and now we don't know what to do. And in the minor leagues, scouts don't have access to the players like that unless they have you know a special uh, – Special contact in the clubhouse. So then you're like, he showed it to 65. He, you know, at this level, he only threw one, but he threw it right down the middle, right when he needed it. Was he holding that back the entire game? And then that's where you kind of get into the, you're guessing a little bit. Maybe you go grab the broadcaster or, or, you know, talk to the manager and try to put two and two together and see if you can figure it out. The player won't be able to explain it to Carrasco, uh, he came to the, uh, let's see, he went to the Indians in the Cliff Lee trade, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. What? What's? Uh, where is he these days? I'm looking at his numbers now. He didn't even pitch in 2012. Uh, I believe he he was slash is in contention for the rotation, kind of that fifth six starter limbo area. Yeah. I, I actually didn't pay super close attention to him, so I didn't realize he was hurt. But that would make sense. Well, I haven't heard a lot about him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did have uh, some good seasons. It looks like, uh, in, uh, from what you're suggesting, maybe some. Uh, decent stuff. I remember him being pretty highly ranked in the Phillies organization at one point. Yeah, and there would be some guys tell you that the that they saw that that kind of breaking ball. They'll say, "Oh yeah, I saw a 60 or a 65 or whatever." But then you don't know what that guy's scale is like. You don't right. know if that guy overgrades or undergrades. And then again, that's just you trying to. If five straight guys, I'll tell you, he has 60. You're like, okay, well maybe I just saw him with a bad game and threw one through one at the end and kind of figured it out. But that's I think where. I think that's both where scouting uh, is most important and also where it's sort of least understood. 
is I, I have a feeling that the average fan would think that, you know, this guy is sitting there watching the curveball, write something down, is kind of half paying attention, talking to his buddies, and gut feeling the whole thing, and all that kind of deal. But the, the good scout with that sort of situation is exhausting his contacts to try to figure out what's going on. Uh, because, uh, especially if you're with an organization that's not in first place and maybe trading for prospects, the difference between Carrasco throwing a 55 breaking ball and a 65 breaking ball is huge. And if there's some reason to believe that he uh, was seen by 10 scouts that night that all will be, think that that was an anomaly, but then you know that it wasn't and have some reason to back it up based on, you know, again, grabbing the broadcaster, grabbing the coach, you know, the, the pitchers that are charting that have seen every game he's pitched, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's where the value of a good scout comes in because, like, like I said before, everybody can tell what a guy is like at the moment. It's trying to figure out what he's going to be in the future. And a lot of times the way to do that when the other 2019s aren't doing that is to use your contacts and the people you know and sort of your your expertise to try to divine the future a little more accurately. It's not hey, just sort of sitting there and writing out what you saw. Listen, uh, uh, Colin McDaniel, you have more than fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I am going to ask you uh, one more question, though. Is it, Would you uh, – would you mind right now recording the introduction for this very podcast with me? As long as someone agrees to undo these handcuffs. Now that you said I've done with my obligation. <laughs> joking. He's joking. <laughs> not serious. That's not what I did. Uh, are you ready to do it? All right. All right. That is Herb Alpern, the 2-1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio uh, is, is, I think, the newest member of uh, Fangraphs Prospect analyst staff, our crass, our crack prospect analyst staff. His name is Kylie McDaniel, and he's he's helping me with the introduction. Kylie, you're there. I am here. You are here. Uh, this uh, conversation, if I'm not mistaken, begins uh, with a conversation uh, or with a discussion of uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> yes, and even earlier into Entrapment, but I'm not sure if you were recording that early. Oh, I was recording that early. Right. There will be a conversation of uh, Entrapment. Uh, uh, thinking of one's own origins and uh, immortality and back to the future. But somehow we parlayed that into a discussion about prospects. And me saying the phrase, uh, this is a guy, over and over and over. The, right, you did, you did say this is a guy. We talked, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about uh, Marcus Stroman a little bit and his mechanics, a uh, uh, pitcher in the, in the Blue Jays organization. Um, yes, and Lance McCullers and references to Ten Wintercombe, Nestali Feliz, and a whole cast of others that probably will bore most people. No, it won't, and uh, uh, it will excite them. And also uh, Jose Fernandez, uh, a, yep. a Marlins pitcher. And we asked the question at one point, uh, <laughs> what's the deal uh, with Carlos Carrasco? Where is he? He's still owned, still uh, uh, controlled by the Indians, but where is he? That's that's. I don't even know if we answer it. One of life's great questions, I think we can all agree. It is, yes. Uh, and and uh, one, of life, one of life's great people is uh, Kyla McDaniel, uh, he is the guest on this edition of uh, this this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which begins, I swear to God, right now. Well, that was bad. <laughs> I don't want to say anything. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was horrible, but uh, it's going to stand. So there you go. All right, we'll we'll, we'll see how many uh, hateful uh, comments I can generate from this. Yeah, I look forward to it myself. Uh, more than anything, certainly. Yeah. Hey, listen. Uh, no, it was a, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm going to say uh, I'm going to ask you to stick around after I stop recording. But uh, for the benefit of the listening audience, I will uh, say thank you and goodbye to you right now. Thank you and goodbye to you as well. All right. That is uh, prospect analyst Kylie McDaniel. Uh, 
talking to us from Florida. I am Carson Sestule talking to you from my own Midwestern hamlet. Uh, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.